The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. My guest today, author James Redfield, was 43 when he published The Celestine Prophecy. Using an adventure parable approach that has been called part Indiana Jones and part Scott Peck, The Celestine Prophecy created a model for spiritual perception and actualization that resonated with millions of people and focused on the mysterious coincidences that occur in each of our lives. In disdaining the spotlight himself, Redfield proclaimed in the Celestine Prophecy that each of us must intuit his own spiritual destiny. As he writes in the Celestine Vision, his non-fiction title published in 1997, the actual writing of the Celestine Prophecy occurred from January 1989 through April 1991 and was characterized by a sort of trial and error process. Quite amazingly, as I remembered earlier experiences and wrote about them, lacing them into an adventure tale, striking coincidences would occur to emphasize the particular points I wanted to make. Books would show up mysteriously, or I would have timely encounters with the exact sort of individuals I was attempting to describe. Sometimes strangers would open up to me, for no apparent reason, and tell me about their spiritual experiences. After the self-published book was brought to the attention of Warner Books, they brought the rights and published the hardcover edition in March of 1994. The book quickly climbed up to the number one position on the New York Times bestsellers list, and it remained on that list for more than three years, joined by the tenth insight, which built upon the nine insights revealed in the first novel. The two books spent a combined 74 weeks on the New York Times list, making James Redfield the best-selling hardcover author in the world in 1996. The Celestine series of adventure parables continued in 1999 with the publication of The Secret of Shambhala, In Search of the Eleventh Insight. Set in modern-day Tibet, Redfield continued the inspiring journey of The Celestine Prophecy and the Tenth Insight, carrying readers to a new adventure in a sacred place where truths can affect all of humanity. In 2002, he joined author Michael Murphy and filmmaker Sylvia Timbers in a collaborative work entitled God and the Evolving Universe. The fourth and final book in the Celestine series, The Twelfth Insight, The Hour of Decision, was published in the spring of 2011. Author James Redfield joins me to talk about life and career on In Discussion. So what did you want to talk to me about? Last month, I was in Peru doing a piece on a relief project. I met a priest there. He told me about some scrolls. What kind of scrolls? It's a prophecy. Why are you calling me about all this now? Because every time I would think of this prophecy, I would think of you. You should go to Vicente, John. Have you ever experienced a coincidence that you cannot explain? Wait a minute. You know about all this. Who are you? Part of your story 
apparently. My name is Will. John. Do you suppose it was an accident that you came to Peru? Why did I see you from my window when I did? Ever feel as though your life was about something more? So what are you telling me? That this is some kind of a fate thing that I'm supposed to go with you? There are journeys that can take a person across continents. My God. What is this place? Celestine Ruins. What's that over there? The mission. But sometimes... I know you. You're here to do something important. The greatest journey... Will told me I had to open up, whatever that means. ...is the one we take within ourselves. I uh, felt the kind of completeness. Uh, a wholeness is... Uh, it's unmatched euphoria. God, it's amazing how easy it is to lose yourself around some people. Why are you losing yourself? I'm talking about you. You opened up. I changed. Did Will explain this to you? But I lost it. Why? It's because you're not through yet. You have to discover your guidance. There's nothing to understand. All this talk about prophecy must come to an end. Don't worry. We're gonna get out of here. Okay. Energy surrounds us. Intuition guides us. This is mine to do. Mystery calls us. If you only knew what the prophecy says, how the world really is. I always find the deeper meaning, the silver lining. That's what keeps you in the flow. Welcome to End Discussion today, and it's a great pleasure to have author James Redfield. James, welcome to you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to read your latest book, and I have been reading your books for many years very insightful very successful books I'd like to take this first of our programs together if I may by going back to your childhood drawing a line in the sand as it were and then moving forward so that our listeners get a good idea of where you've come from and what your journey is all about what are your main memories about Alabama growing up living in a rural area? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I definitely uh, grew up in a special place, uh, I think, in the sense that it was um, it was rural, but, but it was uh, a place where there were many people who were devoted to living a spiritual life. And I grew up in a little Methodist church, and with the communities, the church had been there for several, probably four or five generations. So there was a big, strong community within this church. The church was not very doctrinaire-oriented, if, if you know what I mean. There, were, there was just people who were very supportive of each other. It was kind of an ideal community member helping another community member, having a lot of group they didn't exactly have barn raisings back then, but, but it was almost that. Certainly if anyone was sick in the community, everyone pitched in. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, and this was, this was the, um, the early 60s as I was growing up there. And, and uh, of course, I had a great part of my family was 
from California. So I had a, kind of a multi, multicultural upbringing uh, with that as one model that I was seeing. Also a, a, a desire for artistic expression, uh, writers coming from the well, one part of the family. So I had all these influences that uh, would, uh, led me, I think, to be to be reinforced in being very creative, and but also uh, uh, honored questioning, you know, deep questioning. Now, what is this spiritual experience these people seem to be talking about, and uh, and then and how does it? How do you describe that uh, objectively? You know, there's some. My dad was very scientifically and logically oriented, which meant that you know things had to be understood and and with some some kind of language. And some kind of evidence. <laughs> I came into the environment of the of this deeper spiritual embodiment that these people seem to be having, asking these logical questions. Well, what, how were you before? What, how have you changed? What is this this uh, transformative experience? You know that 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 is it, held as as an apex in Christianity. You know what what is this? How does it feel? What are the real experiences about it? So, you know, obviously, uh, I was probably quite a pest from that point of view, and they were glad to see me go on to college. But, you know, I took, took those influences with me. I wanted to understand the, the psychology of spirituality, so to speak. Yeah, that seems very diverse. There's almost, in some ways, a paradox there, because your father obviously sounds as if he's more in a quantum world, if he's analytical. Did that emphasize even more that definition of spirituality? Did you have that as a reference point? Well, I had my mother as that reference point. And, and so spirituality was a topic of conversation. And she was in the living of it. And uh, dad was in the thinking about it. And um, I was in between. I, yeah, I was, I was uh, somehow seeking to synthesize both those approaches. So um, it, it was very interesting when I think back about that and how it, it sent me off in, in my own exploration with a particular emphasis. Looking back now as a student, if you're at university, how was your life to resonate when you returned home? How were you seeing those differences? Were you seeing the land, the people, in a different perspective? How did that work for you in your mind? Well, it was the 60s. So obviously there were a lot of generational misunderstandings and, and um, clashes, so to speak. Um, you know, as much spirituality as was going on there, it was also culturally uh, stretched by what was happening in the civil rights movement at the time, which, of course, my dad gave me a, a totally a different perspective on that in terms of, of uh, uh, human potential and, and the allowing people to be all they can be, regardless of race. And, but it was some clashing there, even, even at the spiritual level, because, you know, it was a time when people you know the, the human potential movement was happening uh in in the social sciences which meant they were uh you know trying to get a psychology of the higher higher potential and and the, and a, a sort of language in order to describe that 
so I would bring that back even with even more uh, a kind of uh, testing attitude. So you can imagine. Uh, so it was certainly after I moved past uh, uh, university to the to the working world and, and and seeking to be creative myself that I'm more I had a, a, a long enough perspective to look back on that and, and find this good parts. Uh, but certainly there was some conflict uh, as was happening in the world everywhere at that point. How did you look at Gnostic values, history, conditioning, and the religious organization at that stage? What was your perspective of that? Well, my mother was a was a positive thinking person, so and and she was reading about the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale, and and uh, Edgar Casey to the extent that he talked about that. And so she had these books laying around. So, you know, it was a, a sort of, it moved me into a kind of Gnostic, you know, how do you do it? How, how it is, you know, what is this, what, how does the mind, intention, all that work into having these spiritual experiences? And and so at one point, you know, uh, you know, she started to reinforce this kind of talk about human potential. Uh, that I was having because she began to relate, uh, you know, uh, to to the practice. You know, there's some kind of practice involved. Um, but again, that uh, you know, it was such a rich time. You know, where you had uh, um, R. D. Lang and all the interaction theorists um, really presenting a new, healthy way of relating between men and women, and certainly between. Uh, all people in terms of power struggles and the re- resolution of power struggles. So, so it was uh, it was a rich time, of course, because that's where you know, a lot of that interaction theory uh, made its way eventually into, into my first book. As a social historian, I can go back 5,000 years, but if I look at the period since 1945, I suspect that the epoch that we're at now can be traced back to 1945 onwards, and it can be as a result of all of those decades. But how do you look at the 1960s? I often find myself saying that it was incredibly well-intentioned people who knew how to burn the building down, but not necessarily how to rebuild it. Would you agree with that, or would you say that it was more a case of positive thinking, thinking in terms now of where we are today as a result of what they started? Well, certainly both statements are true, I believe. Certainly, it was such, you know, the baby boomers were such a huge generation that that, that they could uh, almost completely reinforce themselves, you know, and sort of disregard that World War II generation to to some extent and um, and have all these dreams. But I I think the dreams was for a fair, just world, you know, not unlike what the dream is now. And it was for it was to 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 break down social structures that separated people, and of course that did it did get violent on from both sides, and it it, you know. But I I do think that its its core value was to to make things more open and uh, and conversations more honest, and in that sense, I agree with you that the statement that. The seed of what's happening now uh, reflects both those things, but certainly what came from an idealism about this is not the way 
this world can work better. More people can be involved and can can grow up to be more creative, uh, and we can make some changes there, both in terms of the racial barriers, but also in terms of people being free to express themselves in different ways and dress differently and all those things that popped, I think, in the 60s and 70s, uh, where suddenly doing your own thing was something that was embraced uh, by this large generation. Now, was it naive? Of course. Did it uh, forget all these other parts of this life and in terms of uh, honor over money and money flow and and uh, the sense that you know I can have it all and that slipping into the kind of greed and corruption that we see everywhere now. Well, you know, I think that was born into, well, now that we're free and can do our own thing, uh, does it matter that I'm, you know, shading the truth here? I would argue now, certainly in light of the last book, the Twelfth Insight, that we're capturing, we're, we're transcending the, the, the backlash and the, the sludge of what happened in the 60s, and we're finally coming back and and, and we're integrating with the World War II generation and the generation before that, which was uh, truly had some a code of honor that did play into economics and one's social life and one's word was uh, was important and all the things that we seem, seem to have lost in the last 25 years, I believe we're coming back now to uh, realize that uh, true success and liberation and reaching our human potential really has to do with this honoring over truth and this centering in a, a, a kind of a place of integrity as we move forward in our lives. There's much parity in your statements there in what well, my friend Carl Kellerman talks about, that integrity. Looking back at the 1960s, though, it seems that we were very deeply into a political paradigm, a political way of thinking, a religious way of thinking. And, of course, from the 1970s, this is when I think that the world transitioned into a predatory greed, which is where we've found ourselves now, globally. Moving forward, we're clearly going into, or as I talk about in my work, a gap period before entering a new epoch, where it is about the same attributes, the, a just, peaceful, and sustainable world, but it's coming about through a completely different mindset. It's not coming about because of politics or because of religion. Would you resonate with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, a good metaphor for me, and it's actually not more than a metaphor, is that, you know, we're opening up this right brain, you know, the, all the creativity and the, the spiritual connection that comes from that. And uh, again, that's trans-religion. You know, it's, that operates regardless of the what the ego, the rules the ego puts together for it. And it's, it's something that I think now is a big part of this unity consciousness that's happening. Uh, but it did grow, you know, it, it grew out of something. And uh, it and in a real sense, you know, we're, we're coming back now and picking up the pieces that we didn't consider in the 70s, 80s, and, and uh, 90s. I, I resonate with that. I spent some wonderful time recently with Drenvalo Melchizedek. He talks about the left brain, right brain, and the bridge between the two, bringing back the feminine, but also both sides of the brain 
are important still, though, are they not? So the right brain is working more with the heart, but they both have to be utilized in the future. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've, you know, I, I, uh, it's, it's a strong point that I make a lot because it's, it's very important to say, you know, to see, you know, that we spent 400 years, you know, developing the ego and, de- and developing this sort of separation and this, this ability to analyze and all the rest of it that happened uh, during the scientific revolution. And, you know, what we're doing is adding, you know, we're, we're adding the intuitive side to this logic. And uh, it, 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 I think we're reaching clarity, though, about how that works in that the logic, the part of ourselves that is analyzing, you know, knows where we are, knows where our questions are, knows what's been working and what's not working, and all those kinds of things. And and it's also we're also discovering this the power of intention, which is, is I think also a linking between left and right hemispheres. But to me, what's really uh, important is that we, we, I believe, we have to flip a little bit further into the left brain so that we really do realize that these, these, this intuitive part of ourselves really is becoming conscious of that. And so we can focus on it a little more, understanding, though, that how we act on these intuitions uh, has to be a logical process that, that the mind uh, you know, learns to do. An analogy to that, uh, wrong or right in my mind, yes, holding on to parts of the left brain in order to transition into a far higher state of consciousness. The analogy for me is being so well informed about the fossil fuel industry is that many would say, stop driving your cars, stop using fossil fuels. But it's not that easy, is it? You, you cannot take humankind into a massive disruption which hurts both the capability of transitioning out of one epoch into the other and also being able to become more conscious but aware of what they're doing at the same time through this intention. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's so very important that that we evolve, you know, this this be an evolution, especially the way we shift, you know, the, the way economies change as a result of these new priorities. It has to be an evolution. But see, I would argue as well, and you probably agree that, to this, that uh, that evolution can, can really go fast if we allow ourselves the, the freedom of acting on these intuitive hunches and urges and giving them a chance to pay off. Well, of course, if you were talking to Carl Kalaman, he would certainly concur with that. He talks about us being in a period of acceleration. It seems very apparent if you are aware in the world and you are conscious and perhaps hovering between this what some may define as a 3d reality and something else then that would certainly be the case in the steps though i'm interested before we move on i grew up as a kid for the first 20 years of my life running around stonehenge and i can remember being very aware but there is a step-by-step process there's awareness there's being able to fully incorporate your intentionality and then being able to sustain it 
with the wavelengths of the universe, a constant pressure. When you were a child, did you resonate with that awareness? Or had you gone beyond that to an intentionality? What I went, I probably came in with with a lot of intuition because I really developed that early. And uh, some of that was astrological correlations at the time, I mean, for me. And what I remember is being able to discern a kind of faith power, which we, which we now kind of lump in with the, the power of in, intention. But at the time, I remember as a 13-year-old having uh, just joined the chess club at school, and my dad ran an art school in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and, it, and right in the middle of all the demonstrations and everything. And so I was there a lot in the afternoons watching all that, but, but I remember uh, he had a particular student that was a chess wizard, and, uh, you know, and, and Dad said, well, Jimbo here it just took up chess. You know, you should, you two should have a match or a game. And me going, oh, wow, no, wait, wait a minute, I can't. I'm not, I'm probably not, not in this guy's league. And, and, but yet being put in that position, okay, the guy got the chess board out and here I was and thinking, you know what? You know, I can beat this guy. You know, I can, I can. I can do this, you know. Some part of me, you know, I, I was aware of even then. Can I can open up to, to know a knowingness that can can win, and so that's what I did. And what it felt like was just an intention and a kind of knowing that if I played very, very close attention and I didn't waver from that, I could get into this zone where I would know what to do, and and that's exactly what happened. I made all the right moves. Uh, he made a couple of mistakes that I became aware of, and I beat him, you know, this 12 or 13-year-old. And it, it, it's, it's sort of, that was an experience that I relied on. Uh, I have relied on all through my life. You know, I can, I can get into a place, I may not think I can do it from an ego point of view, but there's a part of me that can open up to get this done. So, you know, there were these, those experiences, and some of it was, uh, my father could do that. And he had a, a, a tremendous ability to make something happen, obviously from some other part of himself. We're talking about intentionality, and you talk very much using the, the terminology synchronicity, but then we're in a world today where we are looking for integrity again, and I see it as a huge amount of moral courage. Do you see that as an equation where you have intention, synchronicity, moral courage, integrity? You know, I, my experience of it is that the integrity, it begins with a, a search for clarity, which really means a search for truth. You know, what's the truth of this situation? You know, what do I really think from a larger part of myself? You know, and that's when we... And I argue that if once one decides to tell, be honest with people, transparently honest with people, uh, what happens is that we settle into this this place where we can have all of our consciousness. Suddenly, we can, you know, in meditation we call it centeredness, right? Where you just feel like you're centered and you're at peace, and you can you have it seems like time slows down, or you can observe completely that sort of thing and it's that intention 
to me that then then brings integrity. So it's, it, there's a kind of honesty and and willingness to act without a hidden agenda of any kind that then brings the fruits of that, which is a sense of increased clarity about how to operate in life. Because if you once you start looking for the truth of things, even though you know, and, and allow your truth to evolve, you know, I mean, we're always learning something new or learning we were wrong about something and having to change our minds. But there's something about that process of deciding what's true and am I right about this or am I wrong? I'm listening to the other person. Is he right or am I wrong? The comparison of truth that allows everything else to come and and that path that you begin to be on is one where the rest of you know you can suddenly hear those intuitions and those dreams and it feels like living a life of integrity i think what you have just achieved there is defining oneness with the universe it seems to me you are now in a position where nothing to hide you're not riding that perilous fence uh, or uh, deciding whether to uh, shift between those human frailties of addiction, fear, codependence, or any of these terrible frailties that we have as human beings. And so now you have managed to throw those away and you are relying completely upon this divine universe because everything you're thinking is completely in synchronicity with the universe. Uh, yeah, I think so. I like to use the word alignment because somehow we're opening, opened up to the rest of our knowingness because we've decided to be honest about what we know and what we don't know. And that what what it feels like is now the world's clear where our conversation with a stranger, we suddenly know how to respond to a question in a way that's not well, it has no agenda. It's like an honest, well, what do I think about that? And that pondering, honestly, it releases some kind of intuitive guidance that we can, uh, that, oh, yeah, this is what I'll say about that. This is what I think is true about that question. And suddenly it feels much easier to uh, know one's own mind and and uh, in that, you know, in the old adage, the truth shall set you free, uh, and if you're honorable over little, you're given more, uh, one's consciousness starts to just enlarge. And what, and what that feels like is you're more centered. You're now the, the main character in your own movie. You're not a bit player in somebody else's. And the next um, uh, perception you acquire is this knowingness about how you can uh, be helpful, you know, how, what kind of contribution can one make? Because the pattern of the synchronicities reveals that, oh, this is a path I'm on and it's taking me somewhere and it feels like some kind of destiny that my soul is interested in uh, having happen. It's a great art, is it not? Being able to live and breathe with measure using that discernment and that integrity, that inspiration and getting to the point where you are working by pure intention whatever the circumstances may be afterwards you are completely comfortable with yourself as part of this universe 
and, and that is an amazing position for human beings to reach. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but it seems to be. It definitely seems to me that that given the evidence of where we are today, that has to occur for us to be able to take the next leap forward. I, I agree totally, and it does have to occur. I think that what makes it better is that you know you and I are having this conversation, and we really understand each other completely. Uh, which means, you know, that's, and I would argue that's the conversation, and, you know, from various angles that are happening more and more out there all the time. And, and that's because we, we, now we have the language, you know, we have a common perception, which is the world's falling apart because of a uh, lack of integrity. Nobody can be trusted. And so now we're, we have this conversation because we're all feeling a need to return to integrity because that's something popping in our brains, I would argue. In other words, it's an archetypal um, uh, firing up uh, in our right brain happening pretty much at the same time out there so we can talk about it and we understand the language for it. And I think that's uh, what you say is exactly true. It's, it's, what's, it's what's on the horizon. It's the new spiritual zeitgeist. That you know, that I'm calling the twelfth insight. The minds call it a unity consciousness, but it's other you know, people call it other things. But the experience of it is 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 what we're learning to describe in in uh, our new language. Returning to integrity, uh, I, I could also define it as returning to the kingdom in many ways. Uh, perhaps returning to where we were thousands of years ago, whether it was the Egyptian or, uh, civilization or the Greeks, they certainly were armed with incredible science and technologies that I'm sure would absolutely uh, blow us all away. On the other hand, I also think it's important that we look forward rather than trying to use history as a reference point because of much of what has been written about history has been written by the winners and they're not necessarily the ones who were correct in their assessment yeah i would agree with that um you know this is uh, history is important i believe in that we can we, we see we're coming from somewhere you know and and but as we go forward we sort of redefine history don't we a little bit and uh and uh, how we do that props us up in this new consciousness. So, yeah, I think there's a role for that. I certainly do it. You know, I talk about it decades, and you know, the language is what's happening in our lifetimes. Um, I think that this huge baby boomer generation impacts this, the the advent of this consciousness as well. Not that, uh, not that it's, you know, we, we haven't made all these mistakes we have, and they're not mistakes, of course. They're, they're just all these uh, shifts and changes and, and, and uh, synthesis. You know, it's, I, th- I just think it's, it's important to have, to see us as an, in an evolution. You know, the, in other words, I, I don't, people say, well, the, the mind calendar is going to end, so that's the end of history. You know, we're going to reach some place where we're all in unity, and, and that's all there is to it. And, We'll just be here in unity, and I don't see it that way. I, I think that what happens is history will, you know, this will be a watershed moment for sure. Uh, look back on, but the application of this consciousness will take uh, will take some time, and it, it'll be uh, an interesting process. 
Well, as we enter into this epoch, which I'm assured that we are, I'm sure that there will be many after them. I look at the Mayan calendar and talk to Carl about this, and but there's much evidence, is there not? Uh, certainly in my world, you become so terribly conscious of what's around you. you you're not really in this world anymore. You can see through things around things uh, almost to the point where you can actually um, assess what people are going to say to you before they say it. But the, the main calendar is, I've concluded, very important. Uh, because whatever the the objective of that was, it is definitely here to give us purpose, to help us write the narrative. I mean, the, the ninth level they have in there that it's a time of technology, and here we are with the Internet. Well, in great ways, we're being armed with this uh, approach where narrative can be used. We can, in part, write that narrative. What an amazing time to live. Yeah, I, I feel exactly that same way. I, in fact, I tell people, I mean, this is an unbelievably amazing time to be alive. And, and, to, and to think that, you know, all this that, had, that that set the foundation all through the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, <laughs> you know, all, all of those things uh, occurred as a kind of precursor for, for this watershed moment. Uh, and it's, uh, it, you know, you, you wish you... You know, we could time travel back and see what in the world the Maya, how in the world the Mayans got a hold of this information. Because I, I do think that Carl has the time frame interpreted correctly, and I think that uh, you know this. In, in the interesting part, and, and Carl doesn't because he's taken this scientific perspective on it. He, he doesn't uh, speculate, but uh, you know, the, this whole the seven uh, phases of this coming of this unity consciousness uh, between now and, and uh, October is fascinating to me because I think those are those are also uh, that also set the language about uh, what we what we'll what we're feeling in sequence together uh, and some people interpret it some people don't even have no idea that, but there's a thing called the mind calendar but yet they're they're going to be feeling some of these things that we're trying to describe together in sequence as we move from of course this first day period into into the second day period uh the second phase of feeling this this unity consciousness um uh, suddenly being available i think that if you look back in civilizations james you, you had symbology uh in civilizations like the dogans and then you had written scrolls uh, you had civilizations that either could assess things or lead their lives in imagery or by writings. And then today it seems to me that rather than using that, we have feelings and we have consciousness. That seems to be the new way that this is write, writing itself out, that that's what we're going to be armed with. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, we're... Uh, the centering process, you know, the return to integrity process, to me is is being able to describe this uh, in a language of experience, not not abstract scientific thought or abstract philosophy or anything abstract at all. You know, it, it's it's very Kantian in, in my view, where where we we actually are are, uh, are required to make sure that our what we're describing is something that we're actually experiencing, 
it's a, an inner phenomenon that we have to uh, be honest about and, and, and reality test with each other about what, you know, are you feeling the same thing we're feeling here? What does it mean? But I think it's definitely a, a group cultivation of this unity consciousness, and I think that it's not imposed. You know, a lot of people are waiting for the rapture out there. I don't think this is imposed. I think we'll feel all these urges, and, and but we have to tune in. And when I talk about the, the, the 12th insight that I believe is happening out there, I think it's the, the sequence of integrations that allows us to fully tune in uh, to this consciousness that's uh, more readily available at this time in history. A narrative that you write that we'll move into in your books and everything that you have just stated there, I would sum up with one word, and that is surrender to this end, to reach this point, to where we're going. Surrender is a great thing. Surrendering to the universe, surrendering to the powers that we have in our own bodies and our own minds. Yeah, I, I, I love surrender. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a tuning in, as, as, as I said, and I, I, the ego certainly has to surrender to the, the you know, and, and acknowledge that, you know, I can't get this done by making lists of things to do today. Uh, this is not helping my life. This, you know, this, the, things are changing too quickly, and things are unsettled, even chaotic. So the only way to really deal with it is is not just with logic, but, but with these higher intuitions of, you know, the stranger to strike up a conversation with, the, the you know, when to call the client that you haven't called in a year, uh, when to leave a job before it disappears, not afterward, and move to another one. You know, all those are things that uh, we, as you say, we have to uh, surrender a little bit of our command of our lives and allow ourselves to be guided. You, in 1989, uh, left your job as a therapist, and prior to that you were working with children. don't want to spend too much time on it, but your course there, your reasons for working with children at that point, what was the catalyst behind that? Well, you know, they were teenagers, and and they were emotionally challenged teenagers, and, and, and or we called them disturbed back then, of course. But what what it, they were kids that were had been abused, and a, a series of synchronicities took me into that line of of, uh, of therapy. And um, what I learned was that abused life is a problem. When you're abused like that at an early age, life is a problem. You know, it's not, you can't take it for granted. You can't uh, assume it's all going to be a rosy childhood anymore. You know, it's a problem. And these kids, you know, are left with this anxiety over how to do life. And then they, they create these dramas in order to, to distract themselves. You know, the running away, the promiscuity, the drug abuse, everything. So that was like a laboratory for the interaction uh, psychology that, you know, from a spiritual point of view that, that I wanted to create. It was very synchronistic that, that I wound up there. You know, I mean, I've gravitated toward that working with these kids because somehow I knew that it would, it would this 
this is a clarity about spiritual life because we're you know we all have been abused <laughs> you know you can't get born into this world without really being knocked around a little bit and uh, whether you know it or not whether you remember it or not and so we all have these distractions uh, patterns that what I call control dramas in in the selfing prophecy which are just patterns of how we shift uh, handle people taking our energy you know or are not dominating us in some way so we inert, we create these control dramas to wrestle control back but also the function of that is to distract us from the fact that we don't know you know we're here and don't know why really you know the the, the, the uh, existential angst of that and um so you know the solution with those kids as with all of us is to come back to this spiritual reconnection which means opening up to this right brain consciousness uh, because it feels like coming home and being clear and uh you know the uh, the, the absence of anxiety and all those things that you get from that but Somehow, working with these kids laid the foundation for a path back to that kind of wholeness. But it was something I believe in retrospect now that, of course, we were all doing at the same time. As you know, these, these many, many people were now uh, trying to get whole again, uh, which was when the sort of counterculture reconsidered. You know, the, the Beatles went to India, and we the counterculture reconsidered spirituality. On my website, the very first day that I started this programming, or before I started the programming, for some reason, and I think it's synchronicity, I put on there that we're the generation of all generations. Frankly, when I did it, I wasn't sure what I was talking about, but now, of course, I realize we are the generation of all generations. It seems to me, James, that we've had hundreds of years of quite dark energies we we've, we've had we could go back in civil through civilizations and look at the darkest days the inquisition freemasonry we could talk about all of these things and and it was really something that induced fear into people but it seems to me that we are actually being chosen at this stage to take all of that roll it all up and completely discard it in this realignment yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, the the you know the darkness is always fear. You know, I mean, it, it, it's it's born born out of fear, which is born out of anxiety, uh, not knowing. You know, confusion, all of that that uh, that you know the generations go through, and that history shows us ebbing in and out of all around the world. And and I think you're right that we we now take this returning to wholeness and returning to integrity as a way to link to the only antidote for the darkness and the darkness is the absence of light and and uh, you know the ego uh, that feels that way uh, when it's separated from a higher part of ourselves that's to me the clarity that we're having right now that the sense that there is a something we can open up to that that uh, resolves all these distractions we have and these uh, shadow sides and hidden agendas and secrets that we try to keep from everyone, you, you give all that up when you move to, uh, to this reconnection and, and because you, you can't stay there unless you're transparent. You 
can't stay there. As soon as you go into a hidden agenda with someone or with yourself, uh, then you lose that connection. I think that could maybe, you may disagree or agree, be summarized in those Greek terms of lykos and mythos, where you're going from being outward thinking to being inner thinking. Mythos, I, I should be careful using that word. We're not necessarily talking about a mystique here, but there is certainly going away from that, those influences outside of us that we apply a more analytical type of thinking to, to going towards uh, a mythos where you are, in the most part, using your heart to make your decisions, to, to create your intention. Mm, no doubt about that, in my mind. When you start writing, you're looking at a lot of different areas. You're looking at a mythology and you're looking at philosophies, Eastern and Western. You're looking at futurism, uh, history. How do you take all of those and decide from which areas you're going to apply most of your focus? Well, I, I, I really feel that, that what I wanted to do, to do in, the, in the first book was to create a language for this return to wholeness and uh, this, this opening up in, into, and having the genuine experience of a spiritual connection, opening up to this connection, which is to me the only thing that's real, is the, the actual experience of this reconnection. You, every religion has a, 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 a name for it and has their own set of rules and regulations and helpful hints about it. But it's, it's really only one experience that transcends all cultures and all, you know, all, all uh, the philosophies and theologies. So the first book really came out of this need to uh, take, the, take the psychology of the human potential movement and add a, a kind of language about the spiritual experiences we were discovering, you know, this, this intuition that if we followed it led to amazing synchronicities where the, the hand of fate, you know, seemed to be opening for us for some reason. And that if we got into the flow of that, we, we tended to experience our, a great, uh, you know, a larger clarity about who we are and what we really want to do in the world and what we came here for. And in all that, all that got in the way of that, you know, which is these control dramas that we go into when we get afraid, and something something shocks us, and we go back into these childhood control dramas to to distract ourselves and make the anxiety go away, and to just you know sort of you know just by making that statement, yeah, you know, I've talked about I've talked about the human potential movement. I talked about. The, the real lessons of depth psychology from Freud through Jung to Ira Progoff to, to the, all the others that mapped that out. You know, I mean, that, that also, all that psychology feels the same, you know, in, in terms of how it feels and how it feels to break through, you know, what a catharsis really is when we break through this denial we have about our past mistakes and things we're trying to cover up in our own minds, you know. <laughs> All that that we've learned in these decades, I tried to create a language that would make sense to people who were just experiencing it as a kind of an awakening to oneself without any knowledge of psychology and all the things that we had to labor through in order to get this language together. Phenomenally successful book. And 
was extremely inspiring to millions of people. There's always the element of risk. I would ask before the, the next program and we delve into this is, was there a risk in your mind of going fiction, non-fiction? Did you consider whether it had to be first-hand or whether it was through a story? How did you decide, how did you make that decision? I, um, I started writing it first as non-fiction, as, as a, a more uh, discursive uh, exposition of what we were experiencing out there, I thought. And it uh, it started to bore me as I was writing it. <laughs> so I uh, I thought, well, wait a minute, you know. Uh, and um, you know, I was a fan of Carlos Castaneda's work, and you know, he's criticized because he never admitted that it wasn't all true. But you know, I thought that the story, and and of course, you know, the the, the archetypal power of the story is that you, you're able to just let the reader go on a journey and in this case it was a journey into a discussion about the way our psychologies worked and the, what the spirituality what the psychology of spirituality was and so it wasn't a matter of convincing people but yet uh, as much as it was to show them an artistic rendition of what this awakening was we were having and uh, I chose that as, as the best way to transmit what I was trying to do and in that James tomorrow I would love to talk about that narrative that you created the the elements of disturbance and the effort and the resolution and and how you could using your own intention and that synchronicity write this and many other books and then of course talk about your most recent book it has been an absolute pleasure today i do hope that you've enjoyed the conversation i certainly have and look forward to our second program together yes me too and i uh, i love it when uh, someone takes the time to go this deeply into it a pleasure and to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.